0: This is Dr. Holly Lucille's Mindful Medicine. Here's Dr. Holly Lucille. Hi, mindful
1: listeners. Thanks once again for sharing part of your day with me and my incredible guest. I can't wait to get into this. Now, if you've ever seen me lecture or uh, a bio of mine anywhere on the interwebs or what have you, it says right there that I believe in the the science and the art and the mystery of medicine. That means, in my opinion, the the the, the experience from the patient who's who's uh, actually receiving care and the practitioner that is giving care. There's so much that goes into this experience, and we talk a lot on mindful medicine about. Uh, Transforming what we have known as our conventional Western sort of uh, system of medicine into other things that are more gentle. So I we are going to be talking about how science transformed the art of medicine, and I've got Dr. Karpati here. He has written an incredible book that I have right here in front of me called "Physician: How Science Transformed the Art of Medicine," and one of the uh, One of the praises for his book is that it is a engaging, well-written account of how and why, how and why physicians should blend hard medical science. Yep. We're always talking about or hearing about evidence-based, evidence-based, evidence-based. So yes, hard medical science with soft, a thorough perspective. You know, I've said before, as far as the way that I look at medicine, it's never about the agent like, oh, you're depressed, so you're going to take St. John's work. Over uh, Prozac, not at all. It's about the approach and the thorough perspective. So, Dr. Kirapati, thank you so much for being
0: here. Oh, thank you for having me.
1: Yeah, this book is great. Um, How did you come? How did you come uh, to write this particular book?
0: Yeah, I I work. I work as a hospital physician. I've been doing this for uh, over ten years now. Uh, I work as a hospitalist at a a large community-based hospital. Uh, in uh, in Kentucky. And, so wait, can I ask you? Know, you I can I interrupt it. you one
1: second? One second. Yeah. Will you explain to the listeners? And because, in my opinion, or my fantasy, perhaps, hospitalists, because that's a title, it's a fairly new uh, position for a doctor to hold. Is that correct? Will you just explain a little bit what a hospitalist is?
0: Yeah, hospital. A hospitalist is a is your primary physician, primary care physician, who specializes just in patient care. So I, as a a hospitalist, um, you know, admit patients, take care of them, uh, you know, put consults and do all the type of care while you are in the hospital. And I'm also responsible for discharge, either discharge to home or um, a a step down unit, such as a rehab or a nursing home or, um, you know, or a skilled nursing facility and so on and so forth. So I'm responsible For your entire care from the time you're admitted to your discharge while you're under my care. So, traditionally, this was carried over by your um, usual primary care physician, whom you usually see in the clinic. But lately, um, as you know, the healthcare uh, profession and the healthcare industrial complex is getting so complicated that uh, it, it specializes, you know, it branches out. And part of the branching out process is. The birth of a specialist who cares for you for your admission, discharge, and so on and so forth in the hospital, and that is the birth of a hospitalist. I'm you know, I've been doing this for ten years. I'm this, I think, has been there for about twenty to twenty-five years. So I'm one of the early ones to catch on uh, to this. And after a decade of uh, practicing hospitalist medicine, uh, you kind of get into the skin uh, of you know, how a hospital works and how patients are treated and what they expect and so on. Uh, so so that's what the hospital is
1: doing. Got it. All right. Thank you so much. So, yes, how how, how then did you come to write this particular book?
0: Yes. You know, when I consult all these specialists, you know, you, you, you're admitted to the hospital, a patient is admitted, then my one of the primary uh, responsibilities as a hospital physician is to identify what uh, what's wrong, and then uh, treat it. If if I feel like I need a specialist, I would consult uh, various specialists. And one of the specialists that I consult is uh, is a chaplain, hospital chaplain. You know, we have uh, pastoral care within our hospitals, and and if the patient is going through an existential crisis, uh, we consult. Uh, a hospital chaplain, he becomes part of our team, and he ta- he rounds on the patients just like we round on the patient. But there's something different uh, between how we interact with the patients and how they do. And we, medical doctors, doesn't usually talk to the chaplain in the hospitals. Mm-hmm. They are, uh, so to say, healers of the soul, and we are the healers of the body. There is mm-hmm. no meeting point. You see, there is no meeting point. You never see, you you see a cardiologist and a hospitalist or a a neurologist or a nephrologist talking about their common patient, but you never see, pretty much never see, a chaplain and a physician talking about their common patient. That got me interested into, um, uh, you know, digging into the relationship between these two, a priest and a physician. What's the relationship between these two, and what are the roles? In the healing process, uh, you know, what, what do they what do they bring to the patient? And as I dwell uh, deep into this uh, inquiry, I found something very interesting. A physician of the ancient times was both a priest and a physician. He was both the yeah. healer of the body, and he was also he or she was also the healer of the soul. So it was one complex, uh, uh, you know, role that they were playing. My, I got interested into um, finding out what really happened in in our history of uh, uh, of this profession. Where uh, where did this dichotomy happen? Where did this divorce between uh, you know a priest and a philosopher happen? And why? What was once the main um, profession of the priest? The priests were they they held all the ropes. They held all the strings. You know, in healing profession and why were they pushed away from their uh, primary profession and how did the person of science came about? So I was very fascinated to see how this transformation of medicine from uh, a priestly profession to a scientific one happened. So that is how yeah. it came about. But let me, let me quote you uh, an interesting uh, statement from, um, from a guy named Anatole Breuer, uh he was a longtime New York Times book critic. Uh, he was dying of prostate cancer. He wrote in his book, uh, the book is titled, was titled Intoxicated by My Illness. He writes, mm. I would like a doctor who is not only a talented physician, but also a bit of a metaphysician too. Someone who can treat my body and soul. There is a physician of the self who is, there is a f- physical self who is ill. He's talking about himself. Within him, there is a physical self who is ill, and there is also a metaphysical self who is ill. So he was talking about a physician who can not only address his physical self, but also his, his metaphysical self. Sure. And if we, well, if we rewind, yeah, if we, well, let me finish this last No, no, please. Know. If we rewind, yeah, if we rewind 2400 years ago, if we, if we, uh, look past our, uh, ancient times, you know, our uh, the prophets of healing, what they said, uh, you know, 2,400 years ago—that's 2,400 years ago. Plato said, "The greatest mistake in the treatment of disease is that there is our, there are physicians for the body and there are physicians for the soul, although the two cannot be separated." My interest was how did this separation of the physician of the soul and the body came about, uh, and this. Why am I interested in this? This gives me a bigger, uh, a much broader view of the what it means to be a physician and a patient in uh, today's times. Uh, how did the perception of uh, uh, you know what a physician's what their role is, uh, and if we have an existential crisis when we are going through a critical illness or uh, such as cancer or a chronic problem, who do we go to when we have these existential crises? Uh, so this is this is how the book came about.
1: Yeah, well, I appreciate that, and you're right. You've kind of uh, helped us understand a little bit of medical history, quite honestly. And that the 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 old physician was, uh, you know, a priest and a philosopher, and then uh, along the way, somehow was stripped from that, and now we have this sort of reductionistic viewpoint of science, and we've lost that thorough perspective that you're talking about. So you also write. Tactically built into a physician's training is the ability for them to move from feeling more, thinking less, to feeling less and thinking more. So in your opinion, where does it start? Do you think that medical training makes medical students, and we're talking about conventional medical students, become less empathetic to those under their care by the time that they graduate?
0: Uh, You know, most of the time, uh, young Men and women are introduced into medical school, um in their late teens or early 20s. You know, when I entered into medical school, I was about 18, uh, 18 and a half or so. So I was thrown into this um, anatomy lab where I was exposed to death and disease. For the first time in, in my life, I was seeing a corpse that I had to dissect and learn about human anatomy. Uh, imagine that. You know, you have never... Uh, You are under the care of your parents, never exposed to death and dying uh, directly, but suddenly you're exposed to that. And now you are uh, destined to learn about the death and disease process, and you have to, uh, you are the first line of defense for the patient in guiding them, go through uh, the healing process. And now the physician has to be so uh, trained not just in the anatomy and the physiology and the disease process, but also the emotional aspect of the care. If their feeling comes in their way of their healing, then it's a problem. If they become so sympathetic that their thinking is interrupted, so that, that does not help the patient. You are not their no. uh, family member when you take on that role of a healer, you see? So you have to be callous enough uh, that you are empathetic towards them and also you have to distance yourself. What some, uh, someone called this dispassionate, uh, sympathy. So you have to be dispassionate and so that you distance yourself from, uh, uh from the emotions. And at the same time, you should be able to provide, uh, the kind of care they need. Um, and so. Yeah. yeah it's an interesting get, point. But right. Yeah, I was just going right. to say, you know, it's Go an ahead. interesting
1: point. You make, Um, you make a, I, I, I like that phrase, dispassionate, what do you say, dispassionate compassion, Um, or but, tell me what you said again? Uh, I think I said dispassionate uh, sympathy. Okay, yes, dispassionate, dispassionate sympathy. I get that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I, I was, um that occurred to me when I was going through my medical training, uh, and I was dealing with this same thing, was that I felt it was my responsibility as a person to grow my container of tolerance of my own feelings and of my own emotions. Because I think that I come across that a lot where people simply aren't used to tolerating their feelings. They have like really like small anxiety, you know, they've got a, a small tolerance to, for anxiety and some other things. And so part of my my thing that I've done for myself and hopefully for my practice and my patients is to continue my own work and understanding and being able to grow my container to tolerate my feelings so I can kind of get that sort of discompassionate sympathy because I don't get sucked in, I, but I'm able to care for and I'm able to relate.
0: That's right. So let me give you a scenario. Um, imagine a patient is bleeding, a person is bleeding, okay? Right. So, and you encounter that person in the middle of the street. A normal person, and a, 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 a non-doctor, a non-physician or a non-surgeon who looks at that scene of a bleeding person panics, and immediately rushes out for help. Whereas, imagine a physician or a surgeon looking at the scenario. The she, the physician looks at the bleeding uh, hand or a leg or whatever that is, and she goes in and searches for a way to stop the bleeding. She does not, she panics inside, but immediately she puts a, brings herself together and immediately goes out to search for where is the bleeding happening? Let me go and stop it. That is what thinking, that is where thinking comes. When you are lost in your feelings and emotions, you cannot help that person. When you are, but when thinking dominates your feeling, you immediately go in and see, okay, so there is that brachial artery that is bleeding. Let me go and ligate that. Let me go stop the bleeding. And then comes the feeling, right? So that is what I meant by. Thinking comes, and then the feeling, uh, uh, you know, happens for the physician. Sure. That's what the training does to them. So, but if you, if, you, if you didn't go through the grind of medical training, go through the cutting through the cadavers, you know, seeing the patient, uh, uh, you know, go through the suffering, you are not in the game of this thinking. So if feeling uh, supersedes your thinking, then you're not compassionate. You are not providing the care that the patient really needs. So your your role as a physician has no um, uh, importance there. So when when you when a surgeon comes in, cuts through the uh, heart, you know, cuts through your chest to open your uh, thoracic cavity, looking at, she, she is looking at you with compassion, so that she can actually go and fix the problem that you have. So that is right. thinking, dominating, feeling. Am I, am I making sense? Sure, of sense course. Yes. You're making great yeah. sense.
1: I totally. So, how can medical professionals practice this necessary self care to handle um, burnout and compassion fatigue that comes with being empathetic towards patients? So,
0: that's a great question. See, uh, imagine uh, an oncologist, a cancer specialist. She starts her day. With patients who are going through major, major existential problems in their life. You know, the physical burden, the physical and emotional mental burden that they carry because of the cancer is enormous. They're going through uh, uh, an enormous crisis in their life. So she, as this oncologist, starts her day, every patient she encounters is going through that emotional crisis. And that, that, emotion, let us say she sees about 25 patients. Imagine that by the end of the day, how burdened, how burdened she feels because of, you know, it rubs on her, all that, that compassionate, uh, what did I use? Um, uh, the compassion burnout that she feels by the end of the day. So she has to make sure that she takes care of herself or himself, um, so that she doesn't succumb to that uh, burnout by the end of the day. Imagine that she's doing it day and day and day for 20, 25 years, going through this uh, emotional and physical and existential crisis of every patient, asking her, uh, expecting hope from her, but she has to break the bad news several times a day that that the treatment that we're giving you is not helping. You are going to die. And he, she gives or he gives. Uh, you, you know, a six-month or one-month or a, one a two-year death notice, essentially, to this patient. So this is the burnout that physicians take. You don't have to be a cancer physician. You, I mean, you, you can be a nurse going through, um, you know, this burnout. And this burnout is, is very high in service-oriented businesses or uh, service-oriented uh, uh, professions, like, like especially medicine and this is ubiquitous in across uh the healthcare spectrum all over the world uh, no matter who you are social workers feel this burden uh, burnout nurses sure. very high burn- burnout physicians extreme burnout so the first thing you ought to do when you are going through uh, or when you are in this situation is to recognize the first step is to recognize that you are in a burnout uh prone profession so unless you recognize that you cannot you you know see so you if you don't even know that you are in a profession that you know with with such a high burnout ratio then you don't even know what burnout means you don't even know who to approach so if you know that the second step like you know that that is the first step uh, to um, mitigate the burnout the second is to find out the resources you know look for resources if uh, you know what, what do i do when i burn out what do i Uh, who do I approach? What are the signs of burnout? You know, if you're feeling depressed, if if your relationship are strained, it may not be a problem in your relationship. It may be because of the burnout that you're going through in your profession uh, that was um, uh, reflecting on your relationship with your uh, family members, spouse, or kids, or your friends, and so on. You become isolated and uh, you know, the thing is, when I was in training, my professor told me that when you're in profession, when you're when you put those doctor that doctor coat on, the people that you run into on a daily basis are the ones who love you. I mean, they do not come to you if they don't like you. See, your patients come to you because they like your care, and they keep coming back and back and back towards you. So you kind of get lost into this daily grind of okay, let me continue to help this. Let me work more and more and more. So at one point, um, you you lose it. So it is like like a slow poison that gets into your mind slowly and slowly. And suddenly you realize that you're burnout and, and you don't like what you're doing anymore or you don't know where you're heading uh, in this profession. You kind of lose the sense of purpose. Those are all the signs of burnout. So yeah. to prevent that from happening, you have to have a sense of okay i am in a profession that is with a high burnout ratio and what are the resources what are the signs and symptoms talk to your colleague talk to uh, other uh, members of your healthcare team not necessarily doctors and see you know their signs you know you are a physician you can pick up uh, signs and symptoms in others but sometimes you fail to do that in your own self that can happen because uh, you're lost in the game so when you recognize this, okay, so I'm burnout. Now what? The first thing you have to do is reflect upon that. Self-reflection is the key to it. Slow down. Uh, incorporate moments of silence in your everyday life. A spare 15 minutes, or about 15 minutes, 30 minutes every day, and 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 slow down and stop all the uh, fast-paced uh, routine that you're doing, and then question: Why am I? um in a profession that is so gotten so complicated am i contributing or am i um uh, am i um, uh, you know uh, depleting the resources that i have am i going backwards am i falling uh, from my uh, primary purpose so self reflection meditate upon it incorporate sure. moments of silence incorporate
1: meditation break up that rigorous yeah, you break up that rigorous uh, science training for sure.
0: You break it. Okay, so I will only uh, cater or see uh, what what is being measured. So get away from uh, trying to give importance to only that is being measured. See, when we gotten into the scientific profession, we gotten away. We, we we forgot that scientific method tests only. The aspects of human dimension that are testable, that are measurable, that are objectified, and it leaves out certain important human dimensions such as feelings, emotions, beliefs, biases. So we see, for instance, a patient is in pain. How do you know that the? the uh, how do you quantify the pain? You ask the patient on a scale of one to ten, tell me what is your number. So the patient comes out with a number seven out of ten and the doctor is thinking the 7 out of 10 reflects the physical pain that the patient is or a patient or any person is going through but for the patient it is not just the physical pain that number 7 out of 10 factors in the emotional psychological social burden that is responsible for the pain that also has physical component to it so if i crank up the iv morphine on this 7 out of 10 pain, to bring it to 4 out of, out of 10, you may not uh, be successful in doing so because that a large part of that pain may not be physical pain. It may be psychological pain. Right, right. Uh, that, is, that is what Cecile Sanders introduced uh, in the hospice movement. Uh, yes. when, when she founded the hospice, she's the founder of hospice movement, Uh, that is uh, of enormous benefit to patients with terminal illness or chronic illnesses. So she introduced a concept called total pain. In that, physical pain is only a part of the total pain. So unless you address the whole thing, you're not really doing justice to the patient. But as scientific physicians, we are not trained in that. We we don't go through medical schools trying to uh, heal the emotional or existential pain or crisis that the patient goes through. So where does this patient go? They go to a right. priest, they, you know, a philosopher. But do not forget, a physician is also that. We just broke away from that tradition because, I mean, that's what the book is about. We just broke right. away. How did how did this happen? You know what? Yeah. Uh, I start off uh, 650 years before the modern era, 650 before Christ. Uh, how pythagoras introduced uh, one of the m- main uh, philosophers who introduced the humoral theory and how yes. that uh, was completely gone out of uh, you know medical practice now and we are in a disease centric approach um, right. So, so Dr. Kirapati, so, so, um, with Dr. with 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 a, with a, with a just yes. a couple or
1: like 60 seconds that we have left here. Um, besides oh, this book a- being, it should be uh, definitely a mandatory reading for I would say medical students, nursing students, all of those folks that you talked about. What can you? What that's is your take home message for healthcare professionals who are really understanding and starting to understand more and more uh, this balance between the art and that real feeling side? and the science of medicine. Just a couple things to sum us up
0: here. That's right. So do not forget that scientific uh, approach only takes in what can be measured, but it leaves out several dimensions of human aspects that cannot be left out by you as a physician. So that becomes the art of medicine. When, you, when we are entering into age of automation, this becomes more and more important. Um, so do not uh, forget that you are also a philosopher. You are also a well-wisher, You are a scientific person for sure. But then, do not leave out the other aspects of your care. That that right. brings in the art art into the medicine. And the book talks more about you know uh, notes to my fellow physicians, and and I, I give a lot of uh, points about how to. Uh, you know incorporate this into your daily practice not just the uh, physician medical practice but also into daily into your daily life thank you so folks you can
1: find out more rajivkerpati.com r a j e e v k u r a p a t i in his book physician how science transformed the art of medicine healthcare practitioners this one is for you you know, understanding the history of medicine how it became so reductionistic and lovely things you can do to have not only hard science, but a gentle and thorough approach. All right, mindful listeners, we certainly appreciate you sharing some of your time with us. And until next time.